there's two sides, right? There's it's of scientific advancement. There's the possibility of becoming a sp- all-knowing space baby <laughs> um, and conquering the the galaxy. And then on the other side, you have complete self-annihilation. And I think nuclear weapons represent that nuclear power represents both right and so that's that's why i think it keeps talking about it because that's the risk is that we're going to kill ourselves right but specifically the story here the novel it's like a cautionary tale almost Welcome, friends, to episode 229 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we usually read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Arthur C. Clarke's 1968 novel, 2001, A Space Odyssey. So I said usually because this is the first time we've ever flipped our script and uh, are instead covering the book second. And have we we watched we watch the movie first? So I am curious to know what your what your experience was like for this first time we've done this. I mentioned at the end of our last episode, I think it was it's bizarre. It feels a little weird because we're so used to doing it the other way, but it's rewarding in I think different ways, especially with how sort of ambiguous and interpretive Kubrick's film is, and then maybe even getting some more answers from the book because it's this interesting thing where normally I feel like. You can be more vague in the book and in in the film you have to make decisions and show things visually and in this case even showing things visually kubrick was sort of able to leave it more up to interpretation whereas arthur c clark and in the novel he had to make decisions and say like this is what is actually happening on an intellectual level you know what i mean mm. like say like this is what's happening these are the events of the book um, where Kubrick was literally just like, yeah, look at this. Try, try to figure out what's going on here. I dare you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think part of the reason Clark felt that he had to is due to writing style. Now, I haven't read a ton of his work to know if he always writes this way. I did, you know, we did read the short story, um, which also had this sort of omniscient point of view. And he writes this novel from this sort of universal, all, all knowledge is on the table point of view. And when you're doing that, then sure, like there is no secrets from the narrator. The narrator knows everything, including the, you know, the motivations of alien races. Like it knows everything. Yeah. I kind of felt like with it being omniscient in this way, it was almost like these extraterrestrial beings maybe potentially were recounting the story or knew everything that was going, you know what I mean? But even yeah. then, the narrator kind of knows stuff about them that they might not even be able yeah. to to suss out. Yeah, for for a man who uh, is a noted atheist, it's interesting, right, that he wrote from this almost godlike perspective. It, it, it makes for a very different experience. And like you were talking about, the adaptation process usually to me, feels like a distillation um, into a certain version of a larger story, but it is sort of made concrete, right? Like, as, as, as we've talked about, filmmakers have to make decisions. 
Um, so there's a lot of things that may be a little more vague that are are defined in film. And and you're right. This this defies that a little bit, but um, still the the inverse of starting with the more concrete and uh, maybe focused uh, and 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 it's just shorter, right? Like the film doesn't have as much detail, so less detailed. More, it's more ambiguous, but it, it's um, it's smaller, I guess. And 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 it felt like an expansion. It felt like I, I saw the movie, it was one thing, and then we expanded it into this novella, which has just more detail. Um, however, it also... I, I, I don't know if I want to say that this novel is 100% the answer to what the movie was saying, because there, I think, were notable differences and some areas where perhaps Kubrick was trying to say something different than what Clark was trying to say. I definitely think that's the case too. I, I I would never, even when when we do it the other way, I I rarely think of it as this person them telling the exact same story. You know, yeah. Unless it's very very specifically the same, I think there's always a certain like there could be a change in in metaphor or a change in motive, or just what what the story can be about can change just by tone and and like what details are emphasized and things like that. So. I definitely think that these are two separate works that are kind of alternate versions. One thing I did note is you had read through a summary last week for the movie, and it had certain details that it seemed yeah. like the author of that summary were, were ascribing, like, this is why that thing happened. And reading the book, I was like, oh, that's why, because those reasons are in the novelization, but... Um, again, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case in the movie, but the, the author of that summary, which was just on Wikipedia or something, um, was, was clearly someone who had read the book. And I mentioned how like all the, all of these characters, star child. And, and I think I called moon watcher, moon gazer in our last episode, but it's actually moon watcher. Right. And uh, so all of these characters have names and there's like lore that's been built yeah. up. And it's really just because people read the novelization. And I, yeah. I, I thought just the community is at large, like sort of named these things like, Oh, baby Yoda, even though that's not the character's name, like they're giving right, a right. name to it. That was never, it may be a bit of both, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're named that in the, no the no novelization that came out right a after. few months. Right. Yeah. It was a few months after, which we'll talk about. So, um, I have a lot of background I, I found. Um, I want to talk about Arthur C. Clarke as an author, um, which is a big topic. And then we'll get into the specifics of what happens in this novelization, um, which, uh, again, first time covering technically a novelization and in, in what way this book is kind of unusual and feels kind of unique. It, and, and I'm sure it's not. I'm sure other people have done something similar, but I haven't heard about it. This is a pretty unique way that this was created. And I was going to talk to you about that. And like, well, I mean, on the cover, I think it says based on a screenplay by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. So it's like mm. they're they're almost making a novel from a screenplay that was like yeah. in, in, in the process of being made. It was still it was all very fluid. Right. So uh, before we get into that and like the specifics of what happens and the background, what um initial reaction did you have to reading this more expanded specific version that outlines all these details um what was it like reading it for you did you enjoy it did it did did you feel like uh the in places it was too much or did you f were you just happy to get the detail 
Um, I definitely felt in places it was too much. Personally, I found myself kind of wanting for that mystery that we had a little more of. And like, I, I think, you know, that film last week led us to like a lot of interesting conversations and everyone can come to it with all kinds of different interpretations. And I think, like you said, you still can. But this this novel being so close to the film is supposed to sort of be some of the answers, at least in some people's mind. It's always going to be some of the answers because Kubrick's name is on the work. You know, he, he at least had a hand in this novel. Um, but I enjoyed getting sort of some of the expected things like getting into the mind of like moon watcher and and understanding what exactly was going on with the tribe and when the monolith shows up like what it's doing and why what the purposes were like some of that was fun to me but i am also a sucker for like ambiguity with a cause like i think you can infer some of these things are happening and we did as much last week like right. this spark of knowledge that's that's being passed yeah well, very clearly <laughs> that is the case in the book and in the book they like go as far as to say like oh yeah this you know these people maybe are even like going across to every galaxy seeking out life and that's their whole purpose is like trying to bring knowledge they're farmers who are planting these seeds and then harvesting it and, yeah. that goes a little far like that's fun for a, for a sci-fi story but it, it like Again, it, it sort of gets rid of some of the mystery with this, like yeah. these extraterrestrials. So you're, it sounds like you're a little conflicted about it, maybe? Uh, a little mixed. I mean, I enjoyed the book. I just yeah. think like I, I'm already putting myself in the camp of I enjoyed more of the ambiguity and sort of, you know, I liked that Clark was setting up this world and being descriptive about it and being very scientific, which is what we came to expect from the film. But at the same time, there's something about just like watching all these things happen. More scientific, in, 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 like there's a lot of science in here, and honestly, pretty astounding the the level of detail and speculative. Like like he's imagining. This reminds me of Andy Weir. What Andy Weir's doing today a little bit, but like I guess I should say the other way around, right? Because Andy Weir is probably someone who read Clark growing up, right? And was inspired by what he saw there. And it, it's like, yeah, he's outlining space travel to Saturn and the ways in which it could actually happen and talking about the spacecraft and like all the stuff that we gave Kubrick credit for in the movie. We have to give as much, if not more credit to Arthur C. Clarke, because I kind of suspect a lot of this came from him, although I know they had consultations. Um, but this is the kind of stuff he was super into, as we'll talk about in his bio. So um you know, and a lot of this prediction of future tech, like a lot of that stuff definitely. was pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, the the iPad's in there too. So I, a lot of the stuff I can definitely see being Clark's idea and having some of Kubrick's influence on it. But did you listen to the audiobook? Yes. Did you have that foreword where... Yeah, for Clark himself talking. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. It's so cool to hear that perspective and like the respect that he clearly still had for Kubrick and the way that like he, he re really lamented not being able to see the year 2001 along with him. Just a lot that was said in there, I, I felt like. Talked about yeah, the anecdote of the astronauts going around the dark side of the moon for the first time and how one of them supposedly told him that he wanted to radio back that they had spotted a monolith on the dark side of the moon or something, but then decided not to. <laughs> yeah, and, and the way that it continued to influence. Like, he, he said, like, so many stories brought him joy that would, like, from the space program sort of referencing, you know, this discovery uh, with the shuttle and things like that, you know what I mean? These kinds of yeah. things that are references to their material that they created well beforehand. The way that uh, he mentioned that sa their their idea of Saturn would have been dated because like they, they didn't have the images and the things that would come later, how it was a blessing that they decided in the film to stop at Jupiter 
and how if they hadn't and they tried to depict Saturn, like the idea of Saturn at the time would have been incorrect, like almost immediately. But they they went with Jupiter and it sort of holds up more. And yeah, got lucky in a sense there. Right. Because it was just it was just because Stanley Kubrick apparently saw some images of like how they would make Saturn look and he wasn't happy with it. Right. So he was like, we're going to go with Jupiter. Yeah. Made that change. Yeah. They talked about the slingshot that they that they kind of do as well um, right. from Jupiter to Saturn. and Which like, is, that's a very real orbital mechanics thing. A hundred percent. Yeah. And and was used, they, they like, he talks about how, like, you know, it was eventually used in the Apollo missions and stuff. Yeah. Or, I don't think he, like, originated the idea, but. No, right. But you know. it, it, he had it in a book before they physically right. did it in space, so. Right. As far as I know, you know, yeah, I'm sure it was it was theory at that point in time. I'm sure he had re- read about and maybe it had been done and with satellites and stuff like that. I don't know all the details, but you're, it, it is pretty amazing. And it shows that he is like up to date at the time, reading all the cutting edge stuff and very immersed in this stuff. So before we get any farther, uh, last week, we forgot to mention this. Um, this entire project was brought to us on Patreon. We do quarterly polls where our patrons can vote, uh, and and we've been collecting a list of titles throughout the year, honestly, and we continue moving them up, and then they vote on a final three or four each quarter, and then the winner of that vote will be the one that we end up covering, and 2001 A Space Odyssey is what ended up winning. I think it edged out Fight Club by like one vote, <laughs> so it's very close. So if you wanted to get the option to be able to vote on these things, definitely check out our Patreon, but we just wanted to shout out the patrons um, because this project has been super cool, and uh, I'm really glad that I now have read some Arthur C. Clarke. I know a lot more about who he is, um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll tackle uh, some others from the big three, which we'll discuss what that means in a minute here, um, who are often called the big three. Um, so yeah, thank you to the patrons, and hopefully you're enjoying the coverage. Yeah, I always wanted to cover this project, so you know, to finally you know, yeah. f- twist our arm and force us to do it was a lot of fun, <laughs> so thank you to the patrons. Yeah, I love covering Kubrick, so I'm sure we'll be back with him, too, in the future. Um, all right, so I'm going to just put out a caveat here right at the start of the bio. Um, Arthur C. Clarke is a titan of sci-fi he is considered one of the big three with asimov and heinlein um he is incredibly influential and we're going to go over his body of work we're going to go over his many contributions to the field and it's going to sound like we're completely lionizing the guy because he had an impressive career we enjoyed this book we love the movie like there's a lot to talk about and to like here and i don't want to diminish anybody's love for anything however Um, In the spirit of, I think, ethical readership, I want people to also know about the more uncomfortable truths about some of these sorts of people that we've been seeing coming out over the years. And unfortunately, there is some stuff here with Clark, some skeletons in the closet. Um, A lot of this stuff hasn't been like proven in a court of law, but seems to have a lot of weight behind it. There is an article by uh, Jason Stanford, who uh, in, written in 2017, I think, or 2019, on uh, his his uh, newsletter, where he outlines a lot of these accusations, um, which I'll get into in a little bit here, and I will link that in the show notes. So if you are curious to learn more about it, I, I do recommend reading his words, um, and where he also then links to a few other sources. Um, so just be aware, we are going to get into some skeletons in the closet here in a little bit, but I think we should start off, you know, with, with the man, uh, and, and when he, uh, was born, which was 1917, 
in December, uh, Arthur Charles Clarke. Uh, he was an English science fiction writer, science writer, futurist, inventor, undersea explorer, and television series host. So as a science fiction writer, uh, he was an avid popularizer of space travel and a futurist of distinguished ability. He wrote many books and many essays for popular magazines, uh, won many different awards in both science and literature. He was often called the prophet of the space age. His science fiction writings in particular earned him a number of Hugo and Nebula awards, um, and he had a very large readership, which made him among one of the towering figures of the genre. So Clark was a lifelong proponent of space travel. In 1934, while still a teenager, he joined the British Interplanetary Society. In 1945, he proposed a satellite communication system using geostationary orbits. He was the chairman of the British Interplanetary Society from 1946 to 1947, and again in 51 to 53. So he was working in this science society. He was proposing geostationary orbits, which I'm not, I need to look more into that to know exactly what that means. Um, so he was, from a young age, very involved and very interested in sci-fi and in science in general. He was very influenced by the magazine Astounding Stories, and he would go on to publish in uh, magazines like that. So he was also kind of a dinosaur kid. Which I thought we would kind of appreciate. <laughs> yeah, shout out. We, we both are. So uh, you mentioned before there's like a big three. Um, yeah. I was surprised to hear that like Philip K. Dick wasn't wasn't considered in that same. Is it because he was before them or after them? I don't know. Okay. And I couldn't tell you. All right. We can Again, cut this. this is not. No, no, no. This is a good question. I, I think we I think we keep it. I think it's a good question. Um Ultimately, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I, this is something that, that people's genre came up with. I, a lot of people have asked why certain major figures who are women were not included. But I think we know the reason for that. Obvious, um, yeah. So there's a lot of deserving names out there. These were three notable white guys who ended up getting getting called it. But yeah, Philip K. Dick, I don't know. Yeah, probably self-appointed. <laughs> maybe, just, I don't I'm know, maybe. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so anyway, yes, he was a bit of a dinosaur kid. Uh, he was super inspired by uh, reading about fossils. Um, and then in the Second World War, he served in the Royal Air Force, uh, which we, we, we talked about with um, Roald Dahl, Roald Dahl in a yes. recent episode, who was yeah. also in the Royal, Royal Air Force during World War II. So him and Arthur C. Clarke, apparently. However, uh, he served as a radar specialist. Um, and he was involved in the early warning radar defense system, which contributed to the RAF success during the Battle of Britain. Um, but I, I think he did get appointed as a pilot eventually, but he was more known for his ground-controlled radar stuff that he worked on. Hmm. So he wrote a bunch of nonfiction books um, that he was pretty known for, uh, including The Exploration of Space, which was used by uh, rocket pioneer Werner von Braun to convince President John F. Kennedy that it was possible to go to the moon. So he wow. wrote a nonfiction science book about space travel that was used to convince JFK to take America to the moon. I mean, so talking about how notable this guy, you know, guy ultimately was right. in the space race. Yeah. This is literally rocket science. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's like, yeah. It's like it's more than just being an author in the sci-fi genre. It's like he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. And, you know, and that might be the answer, because I think uh, Asimov, Heinlein and Clark are all known for their hard sci-fi, whereas I think Philip K. Dick 
is not as much known for his hard science. So that might that might therein might might lie the answer to your question. Got it. He became such so in demand as a commentator on science and technology that during the Apollo space program, including on July 20th, 1969, he appeared as a commentator on CBS News during the Apollo 11 moon landing. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he was like, by the way, have you seen 2001 A Space Odyssey? <laughs> it had come out like a year before in, right. in, in his book. Um, so Clark ended up moving to Sri Lanka. Um, I, th- I believe he lived in Britain before that. From 1956 until his death in 2008. While there, he did a lot of underwater diving. Uh, he ended up, I think, founding a school uh, where they would teach diving. And while he was diving in 1957, he discovered a ruin of a temple, which was subsequently uh, made the region incredibly popular with other divers. And he ended up writing up a whole book about that discovery. If you don't know, I've been writing an underwater novel, and undersea travel interests me um, and, and honestly frightens me. It's a scary, it's a scary thing. And uh, I am definitely uh, impressed with his ability to do that and to, to actually get into it. So while Clark had been published in a few fanzines between 1937 and 1945, his first professional sale was in Astounding Science Fiction in 1946, a story called Loophole, while a story called Rescue Party uh, was published in May. Along with his writing, uh, Clark briefly worked as the assistant editor of Science Abstracts before devoting himself in 1951 full-time to writing. He began carving out his uh, reputation as a scientific, quote, science fiction writer with his first science fiction novel, Against the Fall of Night, which was published as a novella in 1948. It was very popular and considered groundbreaking work for some of the concepts it contained. Clark later rewrote and expanded his work a third time, which became The City and the Stars in 1956, which rapidly became a definitive must-read in the field. His third science fiction novel, Childhood Childhood's End was also published in 1953, cementing his popularity. Uh, so I have also heard that that is considered, many people consider that to be his best novel. People can, I'm sure, can might disagree, but wow. Childhood's End is, is widely considered a great work of his. Um, he says here that he capped the first phase of his writing career with his sixth novel, A Fall of Moon Dust, in 1961. Uh, which was also acknowledged as a classic of the period. And that tells me that he was already a big figure in sci-fi before doing 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's not like 2001 A Space Odyssey put him on the map. He was well on the map before this. Yeah, and he says as much in, in that intro. Like he, it, it makes it clear that like Kubrick came to him for a reason. You know, they, right. they linked up because they were sort of, they're at like similar points in their career. So I, I found this note here about the big three, which I, we talked about a little bit, so I'll mention it. For much of the later 20th century, Clark, Isaac Asimov, and Robert A. Heinlein were informally known as the big three of science fiction writers. Clark and Heinlein began writing to each other after the exploration of space, which is a book that was published in 1951, and first met in person the following year. They remained on cordial terms for many years, including visits to the United States and Sri Lanka. Clark and Asimov first met in New York City in 1953. They traded friendly insults and jibes for decades. They established an oral agreement, the, quote, Clark Asimov Treaty, that when asked who was better, the two would say that Clark was the better science fiction writer and Asimov was the better science writer. In 1972, Clark put the treaty, quote, on paper in his dedication to the report on Planet 3 and other speculations, which I'm not sure what kind of book that is, but some sort of book. Um, (laughs) 
So I, I just thought it was interesting, right? They have they have this kind of relationship, and they're joking about it, going back and forth, and they have this treaty. It reminds me of what I mentioned last week with the correspondence between Kubrick and and Clark, and the way that they were sort of like intellectually like jabbing at each other right away, right? You know? And I think there's you know some competitive fire there, slash maybe some. I don't know, like testing the waters to see like who's smarter in this, you know, in the scenario kind of thing. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about his personal life, um, just because that it will become important as we continue to discuss some of the revelations that come out later. So Clark lives in Sri Lanka from 1956 until 2008, as I already said. On a trip to Florida in 1953, Clark met and quickly married Marilyn Mayfield, a 22-year-old American divorcee and with a young son. They separated permanently after six months although the divorce was not finalized until 1964. Quote, the marriage was incompatible from the beginning, said Clark. Marilyn never remarried and died in 1991. Clark himself also never remarried, but was close to a Sri Lankan man, Leslie Ekanayake. Sorry if I mispronounced that. Um, whom Clark called his, quote, only perfect friend of a lifetime in the dedication to his novel, The Fountains of Paradise. Clark is buried with Ekanayake, who predeceased him by three decades. In his biography of Stanley Kubrick, John Baxter cites Clark's homosexuality as a reason why he relocated due to the more tolerant laws with regard to homosexuality in Sri Lanka. In 1988, he was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome because he originally contracted polio in 1962, and he would end up needing to use a wheelchair for most of the time uh, thereafter. And then here we go, we get into some of the accusations. In 1998, a magazine called The Sunday Mirror reported that he paid Sri Lankan boys for sex, leading to the cancellation of plans for Prince Charles to knight him on a visit to the country. The accusation was subsequently found to be baseless by Sri Lankan police. Journalists who inquired of Clark whether he was gay were told, quote, no, merely mildly cheerful. So he was kind of flipping about it. In 1998, he was going to be made a Knight Bachelor for his services to literature, but the honor was delayed as the uh, at Clark's request because of the accusation by the tabloid. According to the Daily Telegraph, the Mirror subsequently published an apology, and Clark chose to not sue for defamation. Now, it is reported that Clark is a friend of newspaper tycoon Rupert Murdoch. It seemed that Rupert Murdoch told him that he was going to have everybody fired who had published the article. So some, maybe some covering up going on here. As Jason Stanford says in his piece, homosexual men are often smeared as pedophiles. This is a pretty common tactic. Um, so for a long time, people looked at this and said, okay, his, his, his detractors are trying to smear him, right? Um, however, there was a, uh, a 2017 article written, I believe, in Vice, uh, where a, uh, a victim laid out his encounter with a famous British science fiction author from in Sri Lanka. And it's pretty harrowing. Um, I won't go over the details of it here, but um, I, I will link again Jason Sanford's article, and then that has a link to that in particular. Suffice it to say, it seems like there was probably some uh, fire where there was smoke for this one, unfortunately. Yeah, and as you said before, it's only it just seems like it's becoming such a common thing to, to have these like facts sort of come out after the fact because of you know, covering up and things like that for such a long time. So really unfortunate. And, uh, you know, it's difficult to engage with with some material with that sort of in mind. Yeah. But I think it's going to end up sort of being 
up to each person's, you know, discretion, whether they can sort of sort through the two, you know, yeah. as, as fucked up as that is. Yeah. Separating art from artists, right? It's, it's a big discussion these days. Is it ethical to do so? Um, obviously, this is a very important author in the history of science fiction, um, noted uh, his, his themes of humanism. Um, he, he was brilliant, clearly. Um, his work is, is, you know, super important, not just to science fiction, but to, like, the history of humankind and our space travel, it seems like. Like, it's influential. So I think, for me personally, it's like it's worth engaging with and talking about with the caveat of knowing that there is this thing. And, and for me, like, I just need to put it in its right place in my head, right? So I can say, like, he's, he's, he, you know, has problems. So he's, you know, I, I just want to be aware of that. But that's going to be up to each and every person. And, you know, if you, if you hear that and you say, no, I can't with this guy, that's totally legit. You know, that's, you know, that's reasonable. And um, I don't think anyone, at least on this podcast, is going to give going to fault you for that. Um, so, but we, that's why I want to put it out there, right? Cause I, I would also hate to ignore it, which would be the other option is to just not talk about any of that stuff and pretend like it's not there, which is what science fiction has been doing for years. And I think there's been a reckoning surrounding that, um, much like the me too movement in, in Hollywood. Like we hope that it yeah. continues to be like more and more transparent throughout all industries. Yeah. And because, yeah, the more you ignore this stuff, the more you permit it to, to go on and to be unchecked and, um, yeah, I think it's it's the right thing is to is to get it out, air it out, and let people let people know what's been going on. Yeah, it also so, feels skeevy to not mention it too, right? It feels like it's covering me, yeah. up for him, kind of in a, in a sense. So, anyway, I I can still engage with this material and and like understand its place and its influence. Well, and, and also like fucked up people who did shitty things can still be brilliant. Like that's the nature of humanity and can still have brilliant works. Um, and it would be nice if everybody who was, who did shitty things sucked at writing was also yeah. talentless hack who was terrible right. anyway at, at everything they did. Right. Like I think a lot of times people want to believe that, but it's just not true. Um, and regardless of whether or not you think like Clark was the greatest writer ever or anything, like I think he's still worth talking about and, and um, his, his work is good enough and interesting enough that it's, that it's, that it merits discussion. Uh, so that's what we'll do. Back to 2001. Um, we've already talked a little bit about how Stanley Kubrick and him developed this at the same time. Um, Kubrick and him would, would share notes with one another. Uh, Clark said that he saw, um, I forget what word he used, like early dailies dailies or something he saw something from the movie and he would actually have to go and change some stuff in the book um during the writing process to like make it match more um you know there are differences obviously so i think that only went so far and then uh he was kind of racing with kubrick and kubrick ended up getting it out a few months early uh earlier than him it did seem like there was maybe a little bit of a, a, a annoyance there where he was saying that like a lot of people tend to wholly grant Kubrick credit for the movie. And like, he feels like he was kind of sidelined. Well, for it's, it. I mean, in, in a similar way to most director writer relationships is like the director takes the material, unless they yeah. are the writer and director, they take the material yeah. and interpret it and create something and then get most of the credit. Yeah. Clark said that 
Kubrick didn't end up wanting his name on the novel. And because of that, he felt that it situated the novel as a mere novelization of Stanley Kubrick's ideas mm. instead of this sort of co-creation. I mean, in, in subsequent, like later vault versions, his name was added. I think it's that it wasn't authored by Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick. It's a, it's based on a screenplay by Stanley Kubrick. But and- yeah, even then, that's that's like granting authorship to Stanley Kubrick, which is what I think Clark was not super happy with. But it doesn't seem like it like made it so they hated each other because they, you know. It does sound like someone from, from the thing that I heard at the beginning of my audiobook. It sounded like someone who had a lot of respect and reverence for the person and, you know, whatever went on between them was like water under the bridge. And ultimately they created something that I think, you know, changed the world. So Well, and, and I mean, we talked about this a little bit with The Shining and Kubrick and King, right? Another mega author who Kubrick took his work and like made it his own. And a lot of people, when they think of The Shining, they think of Stanley Kubrick, not Stephen King. And I think King, King did not like that and has done a lot to make sure people know, like, this is my story. So I, this seems to be kind of a pattern for Kubrick. I wonder if that's true with like all of, like where he like he does these adaptations, but the resulting film he try like in some way tries to take ownership. He seems to sort of say like this is mine only and only mine. I don't know if that's fair, but I'm I'm picking up on some similar vibes in the in in this. You know, I definitely think most people would be surprised at the number of things that he adapted, um, but. He does change an awful lot, you know. He does, and he puts his own spin on him for sure. So maybe that justifies this in some ways. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. This 2001 Space Odyssey ended up becoming a series. In 1982, Clark would write a sequel uh, titled 2010 Odyssey 2, which was made into a film in 1984. Uh, Clark wrote two further sequels that have not been adapted into motion pictures, 2061 Odyssey 3, which was published in 87, and 3001 The Final Odyssey, which was published in 1997. Uh, So 2061 Odyssey 3 involves a visit to Halley's Comet uh, on its next plunge through the inner solar system and a spaceship crash on Europa. The whereabouts of astronaut Dave Bowman, a.k.a. the Star Child, and the artificial intelligence HAL 9000 and the development of native life on Europa, protected by the alien monolith, are revealed. Finally, in 3001, the final Odyssey, astronaut Frank Poole's freeze-dried body, found by a spaceship <laughs> beyond the orbit of Neptune, is revived by advanced medical science. So I read that line. <laughs> I, I was like, I got to know what the, just, just out of curiosity, what the, the, these other books could be about. And I saw that the, the next one was, was adapted. So I didn't look at that at all, but I went to 3001 and saw that he's floating through space for like a thousand years and then gets like resurrected. And I was like, holy shit. Like he goes, not only does he go crazy with the stories, but also he, it's still so inherently tied to 2001. Like, remember this character? Yeah, he's coming back. Well, this series, at least. He did write other series. Like but This is the 2001 series. Maybe we'll watch the second one as a bonus episode. Apparently, uh, upon seeing the premiere, 2001, Clark left the theater at the intermission in tears after having watched an 11-minute scene, which did not make it to general release, odd, where an astronaut is doing nothing more than jogging inside the spaceship which was Kubrick's idea of showing the audience how boring space travel could be. So apparently there was an 11-minute jogging sequence that seems like it was cut down. 
I, I just felt I didn't have enough time last episode, but there was an initial release and there was like this, there's this cut that existed that he showed. Then he, I think he, they said he cut somewhere around like 16 minutes or something like that. Okay. Including 11 minutes of jogging, it sounds like. Potentially. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what the scene was. So that's interesting. interesting. To know. Yeah. Um, he has a book called The Rendezvous with Rama. And uh, in 1973, it was optioned for filmmaking, uh, but the motion picture was in development hell as of 2014. But in the early 2000s, actor Morgan Freeman expressed his desire to produce a movie based on Rendezvous with Rama. After a drawn-out development process in which Freeman attributed to difficulties in getting financing, it appeared in 2003 that this project might be proceeding, uh, but this was very dubious. The film was to be produced by Freeman's company, uh, and David Fincher had been touted on Revelation's uh, uh, Rama webpage as far back as 2001 as the film's director. After years of no progress, Fincher stated in an interview in 2007 that he is still attached to Helm. However, in late 2008, Fincher stated that the movie is unlikely to be made. It looks like nothing is going to happen and there's no script, and as you know, Morgan Freeman's not in the best of health right now. We've been trying to do it, but it's probably not going to happen. 2010... Though, the film was announced as still planned for future production, and both Freeman and Fincher mentioned it as still needing a worthy script. In late 2021, it was announced that Denis Villeneuve would direct the adaptation of Rendezvous with Rama following the successful and critically praised release of his adaptation of Dune. Freeman is listed as a producer. (laughs) Wow. So our next Denis Villeneuve science fiction project is an arthur c Clarke novel unless he decides to do like six dune films and then possible we, we mentioned this a little bit somewhere else but i just wanted to touch back in that we might be revisiting clark at some point if uh if if we get a denny villeneuve adaptation of it especially if villeneuve yeah we'll definitely be covering it if, if it's villeneuve <laughs> yeah so um i just wanted to also note that uh this quote i did find from clark that i liked he says, quote, it is not easy to see how the more extreme forms of nationalism can long survive when men have seen the earth in its true perspective as a single small globe against the stars. I got that from the story. There was there were moments in the story and I, something even stated as far as like we cannot be as selfish if we knew something else was out there. Like if we knew for a fact yeah. we were not the only there's we would stop thinking of everything that we do as like cosmically faded or, or mm-hmm. like so cosmically important. And I, I love that like that, clo- that that quote really like distills down that idea of yeah. that I was getting from some parts in this novel where you stop worrying about the individual, you stop worrying about the petty things on earth and the human, the fights that we have between each other. And you start thinking about things cosmically and you're like, wow, there's, there's so much more out there. And well, another quote he had here that I liked, um, he was opposed to claims of sovereignty over space stating, quote, there is hopeful symbolism in the fact that flags do not wave in a vacuum. So he he was a proponent of not having countries owning things in space, which I agree with. (laughs) And then uh, one last one that I liked here, uh, he was noted as an anti-capitalist, stating that he did not fear automation because, quote, the goal of the future is full unemployment so we can play. That's why we have to destroy the present politico-economic system. So he was also Antifa, apparently, <laughs> and anti-capitalist and a bit of a socialist. Um, so that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as automation, I mean, like, there's going to be a lot of these things that have to be handled in the, the sci-fi future that we're, we're finding ourselves in, you know, as automation yeah. changes 
be less jobs available in certain certain you know fields and he wants full unemployment everybody's just chasing their dreams yeah so at what point uh at what point do we hit that nice threshold yeah it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a challenge uh okay so let's move into the plot summary and then we can talk about specifics for this novelization um which if you haven't uh, read it, you know, we'll describe what happens in it, and you can kind of learn for yourself the differences between uh, movie and book. So, three million years BC, unseen aliens place a monolith, a giant device used by the aliens to investigate other worlds in Africa. A group of ape-like early human ancestors led by a character named Moonwatcher sees the device. After seeing the device, the group starts creating tools, which in turn gives them an advantage over the wild animals and other tribes. The group's evolutionary leap in thinking, the development of tools, which provides them with food and domination over other tribes, is due to the subliminal psychological influence from the alien monolith. Okay, so let's stop there. We talked about this a little bit. Um, In the book, it is very clear that the monolith is, it's stated, it's testing them. It's like scanning them. It's taking control of their bodies and making them try and manipulate things to see what kind of dexterity they have with their hands and, you know, all this stuff. It's shooting out beams of light. It's making them look at it and, like, imprinting things into their brains. It puts an image of, like, four, like, fat man-apes that are just lazy and, like, enjoying life into the head of Moonwatcher. And that's, like, the first time he's ever experienced envy and, like, frustration over his life. And it introduces the idea of like when they use tools and they hunt, eventually they have leisure time and things like that. So which it never had. And I did really like the um the nature of the the consciousness being described for these man apes and how they hadn't like had never had this kind of thought, never had this kind of emotion. Like the moment where it had the thought to take the body of a of the leopard, I think, or one of the things that it killed and drag it back to their like cave. They had never done that before. And like stuff like that, I thought was all really cool. Um, but it's all written from this omniscient perspective. It's interesting to me that that perspective was used because to me, it's, it still feels, it feels old fashioned. And I know this is an older book, but Maladay, you see a lot of close or limited in some way perspectives. And to me, that that mimics human experience more closely because we don't know everything. And interestingly, I think that also mimics the perception of the movie because Kubrick only shows us something as if we were standing there looking at it and doesn't give us the insight of the reasons why of a, of, a, of like a, that only a higher being would somehow know that we get in the novel. Yeah, we're not getting a ton of like exposition with someone telling us what's happening and why why why, yeah. You could write this novel that way, but Clark chooses not to. I I really enjoyed this actually. I liked getting cuz it, it does feel that first scene in the film. I, I love it. Iconic. I think the matching transition is worth that scene easy and yeah. like all the things that go it's on. It's a bit long. <laughs> yeah i mean people would say that about every scene probably but I, that was the one where i felt it i mean there was a couple times during that where i was like okay we probably could have gotten this with a little less screen time yeah i can see that just personally just personally who am i to criticize kubrick but how dare you you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that scene i found to be like a little more interesting like you said like i, I found it to have more substance something a little more sci-fi intrigue to it yeah 
um, really gets into it, right? With like the what's being imparted and the way that that affects the mind and and what it creates. Yeah, and the and, and then we get the the you know each thing that they do. It's stated like this is the first time that humans have done or man apes have done this, and this is the first time that this has happened, which is cosmic perspective right there. Like, that's that omniscient perspective to be able to definitively state this is the first time that. You know, yeah. drums were heard in in Africa. And it wouldn't happen again for another, you know, however many years. Yeah, it feels really epic when you when you set something up like yeah. that too. It feels like we're witnessing one of the most important moments, right? Possibly ever. So yeah, very cool. Yeah, we had a little mini rave, not really, but we had drums and vibration and lights and all this stuff coming out of the the monolith, which is the other thing. Like we don't see any of that really, unless you count the you know you know the space travel thing at the end of the movie. But like. The monolith just kind of sits there other than putting out that that message at one point, whereas this monolith is like doing all kinds of stuff. And I was unclear whether or not it was exactly the same. It was described as crystal um, in a way that and it was like seemed like you could at point C through it and into it. So I'm wondering if it was actually a slightly different kind of device. But in the movie, it looked identical. Yeah, I do think it. it's the way it was described did make me think it was a little different as well. But um, you could theoretically say that the apes touching the monolith all of the things that they're experiencing are in their heads. So we aren't in the perspective to also view that. So, you know, in that way, they could still be seeing all this crazy shit. And and you're saying like what what is happening in the book could have been what was happening in the movie. Absolutely. Other than their bodies being taken over. Although who's to say that it wasn't taken over? Maybe we just weren't shown that. But Yeah. yeah, you're right. I thought it was notable that this goes on for the first six chapters of the book. So much like the movie, we get a lot of this. More than I expected, yeah. Yeah, it, it kind of goes on and on. You're like, all right, we're getting a lot of this. this, But it really ties the concept and the themes around evolution, right? Like, it, you don't have this section. And I think that's the that's the defense of it maybe being so long in the in the movie as well, is it's, it's situating this as a story about human evolution. We're seeing this phase where we transition from being man-apes into being humans, and then we see this phase where humanity transitions into being something else. And I think that that situates what kind of story is being told. You don't know that at the time, but in retrospect, I'm seeing that. And, and maybe I think that that is the, the defense of having so much of this in the start of the book and the start of the movie. So we get this transition that goes all the way till 1999. And a scientist called Dr. Haywood Floyd to a base on the moon to discuss the presence of a strange magnetic artifact found 40 feet below the surface in one of the moon's craters, which they have named TMA-1. After the crater, they found it in Tycho and the device's magnetic ability. The artifact and its origin puzzle the scientists. Its dimensions are too precise to have been formed by nature, but the artifact predates humankind. During a trip to investigate the artifact, which the scientists consider... Evidence that intelligent life exists elsewhere in the universe, Floyd and the scientists witness a startling event. The sun rises over the crater, and for the first time in three million years, the monolith is hit with sunlight. Activated by the sunlight, the monolith sends a signal toward one of the moons of Saturn. After this burst of activity, the monolith loses its magnetic property. It made more sense to me when, in this context, the sun hitting it, would be a, a, like like starting the beacon. It's interesting because like Kubrick could have included that detail, but he chose not to. Right. Interesting that it had to be on Earth, right? It was the whole thing. It was completely buried. And I didn't think about it in that perspective. Obviously, it was kind of the first time the sun was hitting it because it was buried and the, the astronauts had to 
you know, excavate the site. Um, so yeah, I guess I didn't really think of it like that when I was watching the movie, but when it was explicitly stated in this book, it does make more sense. Like yeah. that would be the activation. But also like, we don't know, we don't know if a day night cycle has passed. Like we don't know that in the movie. Right. Whereas here it's like, this is the first time the sun has hit it. So you're like, okay, well then clearly that's important. I feel like Kubrick made the decisions he did in limiting what was told. And perhaps he just did this intuitively, but I, I sense that he felt a bit of that cosmic horror that I talked about so much in the last episode where he he found some of these not uh, ideas to not just be amazing, but also to be frightening. And in order to make them frightening for the viewer, I think he realized he needed ambiguity. He needed mystery. He needed things to happen with no clear reason, cause and effect. Why? And when you read this novel, it's very cause and effect. You get this omniscient perspective laying out what's happening to you. And a lot of the horror elements that I was picking up on in the movie were completely absent. And it was more of a science fiction. And it was exciting, right? It was It's kind of thrilling, especially what goes on with Hal later. Like, there, there don't get me wrong. There are these moments and it's, it's fascinating. But I didn't find it as scary. And I think that's why. Um, so it seems to me that Kubrick was deliberately manipulating it in that way because that was the story he wanted to tell. And I think that that's a good point to make because not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but the entity is kind of made to be more made to feel more optimistic. I think like the they're like sort of going around and try to pursuing knowledge and trying to like push along evolution for species and and you know they're seeing some get snuffed out and it's really disappointing to them they're just hopeful that they can help yeah like sort of build up the cosmos any any sort of reason like that that you're ascribing to the alien intelligence immediately like gets rid of a lot of the ambiguity and a lot of that discomfort where in in the film you're like kind of even until the end, yeah. I kind of thought they were nefarious. Like it could be a force of evil. It's just, it's just kind of who fucking knows, which I right. think is, is like the, to me, that's the appropriate tone. Didn't in, in the Sentinel that we read, didn't it seem like it was much more nefarious too, to where it was like, it, it didn't even arrive in the thing. It was just like, it was just like it was coming. Right. But something about it, it, it kind of left you. Well, there was that like, line about, about like how the old are often insanely jealous of the young. Exactly. So there was yeah, a line that, that in, in implied that it may be a threat. And this gets into a, a, a debate that I think is even engaged with in this novelization um, about how different thinkers and different scientists have different theories about whether or not it would be a good thing to ultimately encounter an intelligence. The novel outlines that and then gives a lot of answers in this particular situation of why it's if not necessarily okay, it's at least not like they're here to destroy us. Yeah, I guess it really comes down to whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, right? Like, yeah. do you believe in the greater good of the universe? Or do you think that, you know, they could want our resources or whatever other things that science fiction might have us yeah. believe? I don't I never bought the resources claim. Like, whatever resource you think Earth has, there's plenty of it out there in the, in the right. universe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, one thing I did like about the sun activation, and I both like it, but also recognize that it's it's also indicative of this change, right? Is that it provides an explanation for how the monolith works. It is a it is a sun activated device that they buried so that when it was revealed and hit by the sun, the sun would energize it create this message and then it's interesting that the message then removes the the magnetic field so 
it kind of implies that it had a purpose that then was used up in 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 doing this. So it, it imparts a certain explanation that the movie does not provide. Uh, we don't know anything about the monolith. It makes that thing. We don't know if those people die or not, although I think we do see one of them later, maybe implying that he didn't die. But like at the time, we're like, did it just kill all those people? Like, we don't know. And I like that. I like the idea of it being this like unknowable because it's like, is that we didn't know if that was an entity that they unearthed. We didn't know if it was like a tool or an object like it probably was. But, yeah. you know, just just it existing and having unknown powers, especially to our like human experience like that that's pretty scary like you like you mentioned that cosmic horror stuff all right so moving on once again the novel leaps forward in time 18 months have passed since the discovery of the monolith on the moon it is now 2001 and a mission to saturn has been organized the mission named discovery one consists of five men and an artificially intelligent computer named hal 9000 three of the men are in a suspended state Dr. David Bauman and Dr. Francis Poole are awake and in charge of running the spaceship and fixing anything that goes wrong. One day, Hal informs the crew that they are in danger of losing communication with Earth because the device that points their antenna to Earth is broken. Poole undergoes a risky procedure in an extravehicular pod to fix it, only for Bauman to discover that the original part was fine. When questioned about the mix-up, Hal denies that the fault was is his. When Hal tells the crew that the backup part is also broken, Poole and Bauman try to contact Earth. Earth, by this point, has realized that Hal is not behaving correctly. Hal scrambles the message and informs the crew that they have definitely lost contact with Earth. Poole dons his suit and goes out to the spaceship again to remove the supposedly broken part of the antenna, while outside his external pod runs into him. It tears his suit and rips results in his death. Bauman tries to wake the hibernating crew members. He has to threaten to unplug Hal before Hal will give him manual control of the hibernation pods. Hal retaliates by opening the airlocks. Bauman saves himself by donning an emergency spacesuit and realizes that Hal is behind everything and shuts down his systems. Once Hal is no longer a threat, Bauman contacts Earth and learns that they did not tell him the truth about his mission. They explain that he is supposed to explore one of Saturn's moons, not Saturn. The scientists on Earth hope that he will be able to establish contact with whoever put the monolith on the moon. So we get Hal, uh, we get Bauman, which is Dave, um, and we get their interactions. And there's some pretty big changes here. But um, one thing that I immediately was struck by, and I don't think I necessarily gave enough credit in the movie, is like remembering once again when this was written and a lot of the ways that they were able to predict the nature of a service artificial intelligence. Like we're not there yet. We're not where Hal is, but like this is cutting edge stuff right now that we're still working on. Right. Like with, with our devices at home that, that do so much for us. And Hal is basically that for the, for the ship. And this was written. So like, I don't even know. Cause I don't know the history of like computers and internet and all that stuff, but like, this is way long time ago in the 60s to have this much. Yeah. I would I wish that I had a better background in like where sort of AI and computer technology theory theories were at at the time, because it feels like such a huge pivotal moment to say, like, you know, they have AI, they have all these other things that are that are blending together in the story that that make it seem like they have so much foresight, like they know exactly where we're going. 
And reading it today, so much has probably been influenced by this. We're at this point now where it's that chicken and egg thing that happens with sci-fi sometimes, right? Exactly. Like, did they did did the creation come because someone read this description and go, I want to make that thing? <laughs> yeah. And so and, and you know, it gives a lot of weight to science fiction stories too. It because does. It's like there's almost a responsibility there to to sort of lay out the future and, and broaden people's minds in that way. Yeah. I mean you look at the Martian. Like I guarantee you, and fingers crossed, I hope that I will see people land on Mars in my lifetime. Yeah. I believe I believe we will. I was told at Space Camp m- multiple times yeah. that we will in and our lifetime. I believe we will. And when that happens, you better believe they're going to be talking about the Martian. You know right. what I mean? Like More than just that. We were talking about so much. Lots yeah. of stuff. Right. Yeah, lots of stuff. So did it seem to you like this was distinctly different? And, and so we had that interpretation. I think you specifically brought it up last episode that maybe these entities were sort of using HAL in a sense. And something about this. Oh, yeah. None of none of my theories about Hal held up in this novel. Right. And, and it had a lot more to do with like Hal actually mo- malfunctioning yep. and then being afraid because the scientists are saying to deactivate him. Yep. And it's like r- lashing out yep. in survival. It really created Hal as like having human flaws. It, it they, they gave Hal a secret mission. And because of its secret mission, which we're told right away in the book that it was given the secret mission, which we are withheld that knowledge in the, in the movie. So Hal has this ulterior motive and he has to lie to the crew. And then it basically is laid out that it feels guilty about that because that goes against like its prime programming. And that guilt is what seems to lead to the mistake, which is genuinely made, even though Hal said, or it's said that Hal is incapable of making mistakes. So, the idea that Hal is incapable of making mistakes is basically just wrong. Whereas in the movie, we are, it's never really revealed if that's wrong. And everything that happens could actually be something that Hal, for whatever reason, desired. Um, and so, I, again, it's so much more unknowable. How how it represents that unknowable uh, perspective, whereas here we're told all these things. Hal is basically afraid of death and is afraid of deactivation because it's said that he doesn't realize it could be he could be reactivated. And so, because he's so afraid of death, he decides to kill the crew. Um, so, I I'm just not as big of a fan of this version of the Hal story and I know on the surface it seems the same but there is so much meat to the ambiguity of the movie and I love that's one of my favorite things about the movie was like trying to figure out what could be going on dependent on how much like whether or not it's true that Hal is incapable of making mistakes and then um, whether or not it's being influenced by the alien intelligence it's not being influenced by the alien intelligence in, in the book, or we would have been told that because we have we have that omniscient right. perspective. Well, and, and again, one of the main things that I love, too, is that our, I think both of us feel the same way. In the film, Hal doesn't make a mistake. Hal is infallible. I don't think he does. Yeah. I don't think he makes a mistake. So that's way scarier because it's like if, if he can truly make no mistakes and he can process so much faster and so much more than humans, we've effectively created something that has emotion possibly depending on if you believe that it's real emotion or Or can at least mimic emotion mimicking emotion so showing emotions hyper intelligent can possibly predict 
what humans would do. So like be like 25 moves ahead of us. Was everything that Hal did all this play to, you know, I don't know, I, who knows what his plan possibly could have been, but that's not this Hal. This Hal, we know his plan and he made a mistake and he sort of lashes out, which I find to be less interesting. Yes, I agree. So um, the other thing I was really surprised is we didn't get the open the pod bay doors, Hal. Uh, we didn't get him. We didn't get him being locked out. Yeah. Um, that didn't happen at all. He didn't go out there after the other guy died. He just stayed in. Mm-hmm. He saw that he was dead and was like, I can't help him. Um, we did get the airlock open at one point as Hal tries to kill him that way. But um, that whole sequence, which, I mean, one of the most famous sequences in a movie fil- filled with them. Um, mm-hmm. But we, we that's purely a Cooper convention and what a good one it is. I kind of missed it. Yeah, And that scene is like, <laughs> you know, a lot of... Um, moving parts there and tension and, as as they're yeah. as they're negotiating with each other right and the humanity of it too like obviously he goes to try to save this person even though it's like it's not he's probably dead there's a good chance but he's like you know doing what astronauts and humans would do is like try to retrieve the body for whatever you know yeah. for whatever reason yeah well even that like i mean there's th- that is always a thing right you want to retrieve the body so that it can be put put to rest and the, the family will have something and you know we don't get any of that in the and then the book, yeah. Obviously, in Kubrick's version, he has to let the body go. But the go, fact but that he tries. wanted to go get it. Yeah. And yeah, there's something about like man fighting against nature in that way. It's like he's trying to go out there for societal reasons, for seeming, you know, things that we've given importance. Yeah. And then so he wants to go out there, but ultimately has to make the hard decision to leave him. Yeah. He's risking his own life to do this. Mm-hmm. A computer wouldn't have gone out there to, to retrieve the body, is <laughs> yeah, my point. No. You know, that sort of man versus machine and nature. And- yeah, unless it was programmed to. I mean, it, it's interesting, and and to me, it sort of reveals a perspective of AI that was still early on in this development, yeah, and I agree. It, it feels more it feels more appropriate for the time. Whereas whereas Kubrick's, if in the way that I'm interpreting it, feels like it holds up better over time. It is just weird that they both released at the same time, and they were both like you know seemingly cross cross pollination, and yeah. it's it's funny that like one feels a little more dated. Yeah. Now, in defense of Clark. I will say if you if you are genuine in your belief that a machine that is designed to mimic human emotion, if that is the same as feeling human emotion as accurately as possible, then that introduces the possibility of mistakes, right? Because often people make mistakes because of emotion. So if if a, if a machine can genuinely feel emotions, those emotions can lead to mistakes. So if you wanted to have a machine that was incapable of making mistakes, it wouldn't have emotions. I, and I you might argue. Yeah. Well, and that's the point with Kubrick's Hal is that yeah. he may have been faking those emotions. Right. right. Yeah. So it's just which way do you go with it? Um, you know, I think each each reading is valid. Um, you know, I have a story in, in Reckoning Six this year, uh, which is a magazine, and I um, in that I have an intelligent machine that experiences emotions. It was d- designed to experience emotions in an attempt to uh, increase productivity because it would feel satisfaction over a job well done. Um, but because of that that little bit of an emotional thing that is introduced, a whole series of things happen throughout the story because of the existence of emotions in that machine. Um, so I, in the same way that Clark, I think, is extrapolating out that because this thing can feel emotions, that's why it ends up making the mistakes it does make. Uh, okay, let's move on to the final part of the book here. As Bauman draws closer to Iepetus, which I think is how you pronounce that, uh, he sees the monolith. It is bigger than the one on the moon. In fact, it is, I think, said to be a mile tall. 
Um, once he arrives, he takes one of the extravehicular pods and decides to explore it. When he gets closer to the monolith, it opens, revealing itself to be a Stargate. The Stargate takes Bauman through what he refers to as the Grand Central Station of the Galaxy. He observes other spaceships, planets, and species. Bauman winds up at a hotel suite. The hotel suite has been designed by the aliens based on knowledge they have gleaned from Earth. It is a safe place where they can observe him and help him evolve. Bauman falls asleep. While he sleeps, his mind is wiped, and he starts to become an entity known as the Star Child, an immortal being who can travel through space. Bauman as Star Child returns to Earth, where he becomes a sort of guardian of humanity. They cannot see him, but he prevents a nuclear warhead from hitting its target. The ending implies that Star Child, like the monolith, will observe and maybe even subtly interact with humankind during their next stage of evolution. Biggest changes, I think, are, are here. Uh, as <laughs> we sure. get answers to tons of stuff that have none in the movie. <laughs> right. We still get a Stargate, but yeah. it's it's done differently. Which, by the way, like, Stargate, uh, I, I can't help but think of, like, Stargate, the show and the movie that came out, I think, called Stargate. And I know that that was, all came out after. But when I think Stargate, that's what I think. <laughs> well, it's clearly a reference to Stargate from 2001, probably, yeah. Yeah, now we know that, yeah. Getting that more internal perspective, like, he thinks about going through it and, and how he shouldn't have survived the forces and it's sort of opening up and he goes through and it's more of what we expect from what he's set up as a wormhole. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm in Grand Central Station of the Galaxy. Exactly. Yeah. It feels like he's like trying to ground it for for people of the time for sure. Because these are pretty, you know, if this is the first time you're experiencing this. There's no shorthand, right? He's got to he's got to make it clear to the audience like what that means and where he, where it's happening and, and why it's happening. So then he like ends up on the other side of this and then they've created this environment in a similar kind of way. They've created a, an environment for him. It was weird that it was like a hotel. I didn't, I guess I just uh, like a hotel is somewhere where you stay short term. It even says that it's like a movie set. Yeah. As if it was a movie, like, cause he like goes to read a book and it doesn't have anything interesting in it or something. And he's like, oh, this is just a prop essentially. It's all a facade. Yeah. yeah. Cause so I, I guess the aliens are getting their, their idea of what it would be comfortable for a human from TV is what he, what he realized. And so like he's, they've created this environment. Um, yeah. And then he goes, he like finds himself restful, goes to sleep. And then this transformation happens and it's more clear exactly that. I guess I never really, I, I get that he was being reborn. I didn't. And I thought that maybe he was becoming an entity in the film. You know, he's becoming some higher existence. Um, but I definitely didn't get that he was going to be like all powerful, like a god or something, which I guess you could have inferred. Like what what is a star? What is a star child? What are these aliens? If not a god, if they can if they can influence the world in this way. Yeah, it's unclear. Ultimately, we see him. We see the space star child come back to Earth at the end of the movie. Um, but for unknown reasons, we don't know what it's going to do. Um, I, I just just noticing noting some differences here, like. A lot of the nature of this entire ending and the emotion is extremely different. Dave in the movie is clearly being terrified by what's happening. His face, after we've seen him be so stoic the entire movie, is utter horror as he's being pulled through the universe and, and pulled through this gate. And, and madness, I think, is on his face. And it's scary to see. And then he arrives here, right, in this unsettling room. And the way it's cut, 
with that those overlapping shots and that disembodied like seeing self and aging rapidly aging like there's a horror there as he's like looking down at his skin and realizes that he's rapidly aging there's nothing that is like comforting here and in the book it's described that he like feels like he should be afraid but he's not and instead he's just like amazed at what's happening and he actually feels excited about it I kind of got that he was like in the, in the vastness of the universe, realized like his own insignificance and then is now okay with like, he's, he's here for the exploration. Like he's a true explorer and he wants to see the end of this. Even if he dies, like, what does that really mean? He's so minuscule in the grand scale. So it's just a different attitude in what the, totally uh, what the different. filmmakers are trying to say, right? The filmmakers are trying to say versus what the author's trying to say. And, and, and much like that, it felt like his transformation was more welcomed. It was, it was less sort of, forced upon him well it felt like a reward too like like it was unclear in the film like if it was like a desired like if you wanted that to happen yeah no this just happened it didn't feel like he had any say in it right and here he's like oh great i get to become a god now and and then it did you by the way we didn't talk about this a lot but the the again something that i was reading online that that transition of the bone into the satellite or whatever it was supposed to be and people saying that it was a nuclear weapon of some kind there's a lot of like nuclear things built into this story here. So maybe that was people pulling again from the book and putting the putting the sort of uh, importance onto onto the film after the fact. But yeah, the the, the nuclear bombs are brought up a, multiple times. And I think it has to do partially with the time period that it yeah, takes Cold place War, in. Yeah. Cold War is actively going on or space race. There's two sides, right? There's it's of scientific advancement. There's the possibility of becoming a all-knowing space baby <laughs> um, and conquering the the galaxy. And then on the other side, you have complete self-annihilation. And I think nuclear weapons c- represent that. Nuclear power represents both, right? And so that's, that's why I think it keeps talking about it because that's the risk is that we're going to kill ourselves. Right, but specifically the story here, the novel, it's like a cautionary tale almost. There's like a nuclear that goes flying through the air and the star child like blows it up. It's basically saying, you know, this isn't going to happen in the real world. So if you fire a nuke, there's going to be no star baby to take care of it. It's going to be, we're fucking dead. We're all going to die. Like, you know, mutually assured destruction. Well, we did fire a few a few nukes, and unfortunately. But yes, uh, there are much bigger ones and the the chance of a... I mean, we're we're at a time right now where people are talking True. again about how yeah. we're there's legitimate risk of nuclear annihilation. Not to like totally bum everybody out who's listening, but with Russia and and a lot of stuff that's going on, you know, and, you know their their invasion of Ukraine and uh, the way they've been saber rattling about NATO. Um, yeah, there's a lot of potential there for some really terrible things to happen. So. It's still present, and I think this is still going to be an ongoing question of like technological advancement and and um, self destruction, right? What wins up? Well, and and again, it's like the the idea that like if a star child showed not even a star child, but if some sort of communication came and we found other intelligent life out there, like these petty squabbles that that are, you know are for what pride or. Re, again resources here whatever people <laughs> fight over here mm-hmm. on earth w- would feel so minuscule in the grand scheme if we could just fucking step outside of our own perspective a little bit yeah and I, I do think that's that's clark's messaging here right um at least somewhat it wants us to engage with that so i think i right. think that is a that is a good place uh to leave the book 
Um, I will note again that uh, I think the movie has a different sort of message. Um, that is one that's less yeah. hopeful and more perhaps. Um, but it's not even necessarily bleak. Like like the. F- it's not. No, it's not. It's 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 mysterious. It's just mysterious. Right, exactly. Yeah. There's there there is some hope there potentially if you maybe. you know maybe it's inter it's left to interpretation which ultimately. Uh, it's fascinating. So I, I do think we should we should uh, make our decision here about whether or not we uh, like book or movie more. But I, I just wanted to say this is an interesting way this was made. And I'm wondering if we could see something like this happen again. Um, you take an auteur director and you take a well-known, influential, big name author and you have them write a thing at the same time and develop it at the same time. And release around the same time as one another and hope that the sales sort of like buoy each other. You could do this again, but it's kind of a weird thing to do and it's kind of messy. And so I assume that's why it hasn't been done. There's probably some legal stuff with like rights and stuff that probably have to be worked out. But I'm just, I I don't know. This is a unique form of adaptation because it is so unusual as far as the scheme of things we've covered. Um well, and, and then obviously, like how important the story is, both for the science fiction writing and filmmaking community, like and how influential it, it would go on to be for both for both uh, yeah. of those. You do have to have two figures be able to work together and like check egos somewhat, even though I'm not sure they really did here. But like, you know what I mean? There has to be some level of collaboration that both are open to that might you might not be able to guarantee. So it's just tricky. But I am kind of surprised I, I haven't heard of this happening anywhere else. I'm sure people have attempted it again. I, I think it's it comes down to execution. Like, you know, there's very few people that can that could have pulled this whole situation off and at this scale, uh, at this time period too. Like, such an important time period for it. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's definitely worth worth looking into. I mean, it's it. You know what it makes me think of honestly is n- films that are not adaptations. Sure. You know, films that, that there's no there's no adaptation process other than the writ the written word that we get on a script and the final film. Yeah. So that's sort of like a, a writer. But it's different than that too, right? Like they talk about how the process of writing the novel added a a sort of depth that we love about adaptations, right? Like we love that there's this depth that the filmmakers are able to draw on, and I think Kubrick got the best of both worlds in that sense, right? Like he got that depth even though he wasn't necessarily adapting something directly he was he maybe had more creative freedom than than usual i don't know well he, he also did have the short story to kind of be his like his that's seed. true that's the other x factor in this whole thing right is this, this initial seed it's interesting man it's such a weird situation i wonder if we'll see something like this again or maybe we have if you know of anything like this let me know i'm just curious you know and whether or not and what that would look like is there any is there any pairings that um you know our listeners would like to see like author director and author co-developing a story at the same time is that something you'd be interested in or do you prefer that they don't do that (laughs) i'd love to hear yeah i think it'd be awesome it's just it comes down to the singularity of a vision right like if they can be it's either going to be extremely similar or each person has to be very much, you know, for for this to be as different as that's it is. why you got to use a big name like already established yeah. who's going to write the novel they're going to write. I don't know, man. That's it's, it. Feels like it's very tough. Like a lot of moving. It is parts. tough. It is tough. It's. I think it's it's more tough than people realize. I think to give it something like this to work. Okay, so ultimately, uh, let's move through this quickly because I think we're on the same page. But who knows? Um, what was better? 
of these two, I'll start. It was the movie for me. I, I've already expressed how much I loved the sort of cosmic horror element um, and the mystery of the film, um, not to mention just the absolutely stunning visuals and everything that went into it. This was a cool book, and if it had been written before, like truly before, you know, like I'd give it tons of credit. I still give it tons of credit now, but I think it wouldn't ultimately matter. I still would prefer Kubrick's version of it. Um, and ultimately that's where I'm at. So yeah, it's the movie for me pretty easily. I mean, I got to gush in the first episode some, but it it is just one of the most important films ever. made. I I don't think that anybody's here to debate that. I don't think anybody can really debate that. It it just like for when it came out, for what it meant to special effects, for what it meant to sci-fi and genre filmmaking and just writing in general, that that genre for people to live in that space, it breaks down barriers. It, you know, it speaks universally to everyone, I think, uh, just in uh, terms of like this, the insignificance of man and and like machines and, you know, otherworldly beings and things that that are always fascinating to dig into. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, the filmmaking is there, there, there are not many like Kubrick. There's, there's only, you know, been one Kubrick. And, and I think that this, this is just one of those films that, that, you know, I talk about it sometimes whenever the projects come up, but it's like in the library of Congress and it's, it's here and it's there. It's on every list of like greatest films of all time. But like, it, it sort of transcends that it's like, if there was like one thing that I feel like we should give to the aliens, you know what I mean? And, and showing uh, like a film, this is on the list, right? It's got to be like one of the things that we think about showing them first. If we were to sort sort of like give art, this is definitely a top three film that I would offer up to the aliens. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I think they, they wonder like, why are we so afraid? Um, so, cause that was the one thing I, I kept coming back to is that fear. And I, And thinking about it, I think Kubrick must have, and maybe he did genuinely feel the fear, but like, I think he intuited, or at least under, maybe even understood rationally, that that emotion that I think infuses 2001, the movie, um, ultimately makes the movie more powerful, I think, because that emotion is more visceral. Um, a, a movie that was purely about the awe-inspiring awesomeness of space travel appeals to a certain crowd, sure, but I don't know that it has as universal an appeal. Tapping into that fear that I think a lot of people feel when they're considering space and they're considering other aliens and unknown intelligences. Realistically, an embodiment of the unknown, yeah, too. That taps into people's you know that speaks to them and that speaks to a lot of like a hidden fears people have so i think that made for a a more monumental achievement and a more monumental uh, piece of art so ultimately yeah movie it is uh again this was a patron selected project and boy was it a good one um anybody can go onto our patreon and click like on any of the comments on our uh, 2022, uh, which sounds like a space age year now that I said it out loud because it is, <laughs> um, but you can, anybody can like any of the suggestions on there and that'll move them up the list. And then our third quarterly selection will be made in the coming months. And that will be off of whatever projects have the most votes of those likes. The top three or four will put on a poll and then patrons will be able to select it. Um, so if you wanted to be able to help influence what we will cover next, 
please join us on Patreon. Also, we just recorded a special episode, which is a unique, maybe one-off that we've never done before, where uh, we talk about my story, They Come From the Void, which was uh, published uh, a few years ago. And I get into like talking about what I meant and, and some like sort of show notes on the side, but also we get to talk about what an adaptation of that story might look like, which is something, you know, we talk about all the time on this podcast adaptation. So it was fun to like brainstorm some stuff um, about a possible adaptation, a theoretical adaptation, including some dream casting that went on. Um, so if that sounds interesting to you, uh, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film. And you can get all of that for two bucks a month, which would be awesome and also help our podcast keep going. Yeah. Also help us spread the word on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at ink to film. I also want to point you to our bookshop uh, link, which is in the, in the show notes. Uh, you click on that and you'll be able to purchase 2001 A Space Odyssey uh, novelization that we just discussed and any other book that we have discussed previously uh, and a few, maybe even a few of the upcoming titles that we're going to get to. I uh, include them all on the list called The Ink. Um, and if you buy it on our website, we get a little bit of money, which is awesome. And uh, again, is another way to help this podcast. And all you got to do is go buy a book like you otherwise would. Um, we also have a list that has all of our former guests work on it. So check that one out as well. And then you're supporting our guests, which would be also be awesome. Okay, well, I really enjoyed this project. Uh, so much fun to talk about Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. But coming up next week, we are going to be covering drumroll. <laughs> well, we're going to be switching genres. Uh, we are going to fantasy, which I feel like we haven't done a fun, lot of fantasy this year yet. And this is a classic of fantasy that people swear by. I've never read. I've never seen the adaptation either. And I, I know you haven't as well. So all new to us, we're going to be covering The Last Unicorn. Um, a lot of people say this is their favorite novel of all time. A lot of writers I know. So I'm excited to get into it, uh, see how it stands up to me. It's a little bit older, but uh, a lot of people swear by it again. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. And that's what we will be reading and discussing the novel of next week. And then we'll be following it up with a well-regarded animated adaptation that was made. I was going to say I'm excited for the animated adaptation. I love, I love to talk about animation. So. Always fun. Uh, thank you for joining us for this Space Odyssey. And until next time, keep adapting. <laughs>